baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Time to rewind. It's the Chris and Amy Rewind Recap. Oh, what a show it's been so far today. We did start by discussing um, the issue of anti-Semitism, which we're going to get to a little bit more in the next segment. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, with a speech on the Senate floor today about the rise of anti-Semitism in this country and the fact we need to do something about it. We need to squash it before it gets completely out of control. And so we'll bring you some of that sound in the next segment coming up. But we also did discuss Granite City Steel, which is technically U.S. Steel. Always grew up calling it Granite City Steel, which I think it was at one time. Um, But they have decided, they informed about a 1,000 employees remaining that they, they will be indefinitely idling one of the blast furnaces, which is the last one, which effectively means that it will no longer be operating, which is not good for the city of Granite. All these workers come here every day. Um, we believe the number that live in the 62040 is right around 300. The rest live in the, you know, the, the, the suburbs around um, the metro. Um, but, you know, they stop and get gas. They stop for a beer. They stop for a burger. They, you know, they park grill, Jerry's Cafeteria. Um, you know, they, they pick up meals from these places. You know, local establishments are going to suffer, um, you know, without that workforce needing to be fed every day or needing their gas tanks filled and um, the grocery stores where they stop on their way home and spend money. You know, that those are the things that are really going to take a hit. Yeah, so even if people don't live in Granite City and work at that mill, mm-hmm. there's going to be an economic impact. Uh, again, we don't know exactly what's going to come of it or what's going to come of the land where the plant is right now. But Mike Parkinson, the mayor of Granite, who you just heard from, said he's not going to allow them to let it become dilapidated and an eyesore and potentially worse. Mm-hmm. That they, something needs to be done with the land and U.S. Steel is responsible for that. Yeah, yeah. So... We also spoke with Mati Friedman, a journalist and author living in Jerusalem. You report under an oppressive regime, you have to make some kind of accommodation with the regime in order to function, in order to get access. You have to compromise because, you know, undemocratic governments are not going to let you run around freely reporting. There are certain things that you're not allowed to report. And of course, that's true in Gaza. Anyone operating inside Gaza is operating under the coverage rules established by Hamas. And I think it's also quite important to understand that the work of the international press in Gaza is done almost entirely by Palestinians who are from Gaza and who live under Hamas rule. Yeah, and really interesting points from Mati. And he has written several pieces. He used to work for the Associated Press. I believe he said from 2006 to 2011. Um, He wrote a piece in 2014 that got a lot of attention nationally titled what the media gets wrong about israel this is from the atlantic really interesting um 
observations about his experience there working. He happened to work for the Associated Press. But it's it's a, it's an obvious point and one that I think is easy to overlook is that if you have journalists in an area that is controlled by an oppressive regime, those journalists have to conform and comply with that regime's censorship. Otherwise, it just doesn't get out. Uh, you get threatened. He said mm-hmm. this is true in North Carolina. Uh, Korea, not North Carolina, North Korea, China, and in Gaza. And since Hamas runs Gaza, uh, there are, as he mentioned, outside the Associated Press office, you could see missiles being launched from a hospital, civilian areas, but you can't, those photos were not allowed out. So you would often see only photos of the Israeli response. And that's a really important context. It makes sense, but something I think perhaps isn't highlighted enough. Yeah, and I... I think that when, one of the things that we talked about with him, and by the way, terrific interview, uh, Madi Freeman is is really, really good, and we hope to talk to him again here sometime in the next few weeks. But if you missed it, it's on the Odyssey app or KMOX.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Really, really good interview to go back and listen to it. And one of the things I asked him was the conversation we had at the very start of the show about the protests that are happening I'm really mostly concerned about what's happening here um, in the West, and a lot of young people are protesting. And I, I said I, I don't think that a lot of these people who are doing it have historical context. I don't think they really. I think they're just ignorant to to the reality of what's happened, what the history is. Maybe they know some of it, but I think a lot of them are just now learning about it. So the language they're using, I don't think they grasp. That's not to say all people who are protesting are ignorant to those words and what those words mean. But I think a lot of them are, and he agreed with that. Uh, yeah, and he also said that a lot of issues occur when you have people who are ignorant Oh yeah, there's uh, protesting, no protesting alongside yeah. people who are hateful, right? right? Correct. Uh, it's kind of the same thing in, in Charlottesville. There were hateful people, and, and ignorance in that moment was not a great excuse. And... So I, I'm still, like I said, I've been disheartened. I feel like a lot of people do know and there's a lot of hate. I guess it would be better if there is more ignorance out there than I believe. Yeah, um, that's and it's too bad, but it's not like I, I, I know it's sort of a silly um, comparison, but I used this earlier. If you get pulled over because you've committed a traffic violation of some kind, you're in a different area, the traffic laws are a little bit different, and you say, oh, I didn't know, or I, I didn't know what the speed limit was. It's not good enough. You you don't get to be ignorant. You have to be aware of things, and sometimes it's okay, but I think in a case like this that matters, and it is so important, you need to be educated on this stuff. Yeah, and I will say this. To that analogy, Madi did say there's an issue, too, when let's say you're ignorant, but nevertheless, you're very passionate. And that's where the it's different than just getting pulled over, which is more of a passive uh, violation, whereas this wasn't they are very, very passionate. So they're claiming ignorance or we could say, well, they're probably ignorant, but they're still marching passionately about something they don't know anything about. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm making that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We also discussed with Katie Leverich the idea of dental care and it being difficult to access if you live in rural rural Missouri and what the rural parish clinic is trying to do. The problem is there are very, very few dentists in these communities, but also as far as access 
for care for those with the greatest needs um, under 200% federal poverty level, there are no clinics in the area that can take care of them. So these folks have nowhere to go if they have a toothache um, or anything concerning it with their oral health. So um, we take our mobile unit there to serve them. We, we give them a comprehensive treatment plan and we see them from start to finish. And we will even give partial indentures all free of charge to these patients that qualify. If you are a prospective patient or if you want to donate or you want to volunteer, you want to help in some way or you need dental care and would like to know more about how you can access it, archstl.org slash RPC. That's archstl.org slash RPC. What else, Amy? What else did we have today? We feel like, oh, we've... Uh, we did it well. What? We did talk about why people are unhappy at work. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a bizarre phenomenon that right now workers have more leverage. They are getting more time off. They have more flexibility on whether or not to work from home or go into the office. They're seeing worker wages increase. And yet, and yet, multiple polls from the Gallup 2023 Workplace Report to other surveys and analyses have found that workers are more dissatisfied than they have been in years, uh, really since before the pandemic. And there are multiple reasons why this could be so. I One, there was a big Wall Street Journal article about it. I find it really interesting. One worker said, well, before the pandemic, she's a 38-year-old in the philanthropic field. She said, before the pandemic, I would have been thrilled to have to go into the office only two days a week. Like if you told me, here's your job, you go into the office two days a week, you work from home three days a week, she would have loved it. Now... Post-pandemic, she's irritated. She has to go into the office at all. Yeah. It, like, her expectation changed. Yeah, because so what you get used to. Reason. Right. Right. But I, I don't think, I do not think at all that it is unreasonable of companies to to ask or demand their workers to come into the office because there is something to be said for an office space and working together and being able to access people face-to-face. I think conversations sure. are different. Conversations are different face-to-face even than they are on Zoom. There's a, a formality and a... And a a cumbersome nature to Zoom, I think. It really depends on what you're doing because I know a lot of people who have jobs where they work strictly from home and they really don't need to be in an well, office. I, I it doesn't, have a friend it who, doesn't right. accomplish anything. A friend who does sales who in the office, all of her work is done on the phone anyway. Yeah. That is yeah. different than uh, someone who might be interacting more and more with their coworkers. Uh, we had a caller say that younger generations are just lazy and don't want to work. I just and don't I, think that's it. You don't think that's it because you, a lot of younger generations, you say, are looking towards the future and seeing, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to have a pension. My retirement isn't being built up for me. That's probably some of it. I think some parents, probably there's all these articles about, right, helicopter parenting and all of that and, and kind of shielding your child from disappointment or effort. I'm sure there are some younger generations who have probably had it pretty good and aren't quite used to not being the center of attention because a lot of times in your workplace, you're not. You're not the center of attention. Yeah. You're not the most important thing. I, I think it's I think it's a lazier explanation to say that's what it is. Well, young people just don't want to work. I, again, I know we've done this thing before where we talk about 
a hundred years ago, you can find newspaper articles or columns from people saying young people don't want to work anymore. We've been doing this forever. And there is some element to that. But I really do think that people, for the most part, go to work no matter what they make, even if it's more than they used to make. They're still living paycheck to paycheck. They still don't have the ability to to do certain things. Uh, and I'm not even talking about buying luxury items. I'm talking about just, you know, things that you know most people mm-hmm. have to live. And and CNBC did a poll um, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, that's 58% of people say they live paycheck to paycheck. That's a lot. There's some of that. And I also think I forgot I buried the lead. We had a caller who gave a reason that I thought was pretty insightful. And he said the rest of the world is so negative. We're, we're negative about whether it's finances or politics, the news is negative. We are constantly absorbing and taking in. Our diet is a lot of negativity. So we bring that into the workplace. You don't walk into the workplace and immediately leave all your troubles behind. People are stressed in other areas of life, and that definitely bleeds into the workplace. I think that is also it. You you combine that Mm -hmm. with the idea that it just, the kind of work situation doesn't exist anymore where hey you can go work for this company and you work your way up and you know you keep getting raises and then eventually you can retire and you have a nice comfortable retirement that idea doesn't exist for a lot of people anymore and maybe that's what it is i think it's a combination of all those things um and we have our poll on twitter our it no is our context poll our completely out of context i got a daily poll out is up on our Twitter account. So go follow us at Chris Amy KMOX. Can you say what the poll is? Yes, our poll today yeah. is what percentage of restaurant owners do you think are aware Rosalind Carter died? You get no context. Amy and I know exactly why this poll came up, but you can go vote. We want you to at Chris Amy KMOX. We're we're just killing it today. When we come back, we will bring you some of Chuck Schumer's comments on the floor of the Senate talking about anti-Semitism and what needs to be done. That is coming up next on KMOX. Amy Marks, Kors, and Chris Ranji on KMOX. We are approaching the uh, bottom of the hour news here. And then we've got the Dave Glover show coming up at 1 o'clock. And, of course, the crossover hour with Dave and the gang. That happens with uh, Amy and me all coming up here in a little bit. As we mentioned, um, Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader, was on the Senate floor today. And, in fact, yesterday had promoted he was going to be giving a speech on anti-Semitism on the Senate floor. We told you we wanted to bring to you at least a little bit of that today. So here, first of all, is him talking about the casualties that we are seeing uh, during the uh, military action with Israel and Gaza. And I have urged the Israeli government to minimize civilian casualties on many occasions. But by committing such heinous atrocities on October 7th, was for sneaking back into their tunnels underneath hospitals and in refugee camps in Gaza, Hamas has knowingly invited an immense civilian toll during the war, exploiting the double standard that so much of the world applies to Israel. To the Jewish people, the double standard has been ever-present 
and is at the root of anti-Semitism. The double standard is very simple. What is good for everybody is never good for the Jew. And when it comes time to assign blame for some problem, the Jew is always the first target. So, I rise in this chamber today. I am speaking up to issue a warning informed by lessons of history too often forgotten. No matter what our beliefs, no matter where we stand on the war in Gaza, all of us must condemn anti-Semitism with full-throated clarity wherever we see it before it metastasizes into something even worse. Yeah, I, I think those were strong, uh, clear, direct, unequivocal and correct words from the Senate Majority Leader because it is, it is so true when you look at anti-Semitism, I say this darkly and ironically, that nothing brings people together left and right like anti-Semitism. And I don't know how it is that spewing hate towards the Jewish people can bring the leftmost people and the rightmost people together. Uh, this is just an example of that. You know, Ben Shapiro, the uh, fiery conservative podcast host, very, very conservative, he is the number one online target for anti-Semitic hate. Uh, the number two online target for anti-Semitic hate is Yair Rosenberg, who is a progressive, Dem American politics, a progressive, so he's on the left, writes for The Atlantic, has written for other uh, magazines as well. He's the number two target. So this is, it's so crazy to me that you... When it comes to anti-Semitism, it goes beyond American politics, and you you see it across the board. And as Chuck Schumer point at, pointed out, historically, such a small group of people, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world and different groups, religions, uh, ethnic, ethnic ethnicities, whatever it may be, and yet people are quick historically to point their finger at the Jewish people as the root of all problems. It, it, it's, it's a, a horrible anti-Semitic yeah, trope. It, it is a very odd thing that has been ongoing, and it has gotten worse in this country over the last several years. Certainly, I'd say the last month and a half, it's, it's uh, skyrocketed quite a bit. There just isn't any place for it. There's no place for that. There's no place for Islamophobia here. Um, because what that ends up leading to is physical harm. And on, on both sides, it does that people who are just going about their lives will be attacked by some crazy person who is listening to all of this rhetoric, whether it's anti-Semitic rhetoric or Islamophobic uh, rhetoric, whatever it is, they will be inspired to do crazy stuff because they're already in their minds insane. And we've seen it happen. We've seen it happen in the last several weeks. That's the danger of it. And Chuck Schumer is right. It's got to be squashed quickly before it does get out of control. Part of what has to happen here is people do need to take the initiative to learn history. And I know that's difficult for a lot. People find it boring until something big happens and then they want to get involved and they want to be interested in it. But you got to learn history, man. You have to. You have to. You have to know why things happened and that they can happen again. And we have to be careful. And I just don't think enough people are. 
So hopefully we'll get to a better place there. That's Amy Marks Cores. I'm Chris Ranji. You're listening to KMOX. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Oh, baby. Oh, You're God. unbelievable. I took a bite of an apple right before it was time to go on. It was like he thought, oh, we're going on. I better get this final bite in without realizing he would have to chew the apple. <laughs> <laughs> this guy. It's like he's never done radio I'm not before. making a good use of my time. Uh, it's Chris and Amy on KMOX. Hey, you want to talk about St. Louis crime for a minute? <sighs> yeah. It's our favorite thing to do that with us today. Uh, Dr. Kelsey Cundiff uh, joins us on the Quiver River Electric guest line, assistant professor of criminology and criminal justice at UMSL uh, with us on KMOX. Good afternoon, Dr. Cundiff. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're doing okay here. And so um, we, Amy and I, discuss a lot crime in the city, what can be done. There are, it seems like People have all kinds of ideas, and we never know which ones of them are are actually working. Uh, There was about a million dollars of nonprofit money pledged to increase police patrols downtown in St. Louis. The question is, has that worked so far? And so we ask you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so um, I... (laughs) preface this it is kind of difficult to say whether or not just sort of uh, this increase in patrols would have uh, an effect without doing you know a a more sophisticated kind of research analysis of it Um, without doing that though and just basing it in prior research uh, that has looked at you know do increasing patrols decrease crime in those areas generally speaking that kind of thing doesn't tend to have a huge effect on crime now, crime is down in that neighborhood um, or that part of the the city, uh, but it's also down uh, across the rest of the city, across the state, and across the country. Um, and so, there are, are likely other factors that have sort of also been occurring nationally, but then in St. Louis as well that have, have led to a, a decrease in crime. I guess I'm a, I'm a little confused because I do know that when it comes to policing, there are some methods of deterrence that have been proven to work. And one method is uh, a more visible police presence can be very effective in deterring some amount of crime, obviously not all crime, but some amount. So if an increased visible police presence has been proven to deter crime, wouldn't overtime extra police presence being paid by this $1 million, those overtime patrols, wouldn't it stand to reason that that would also serve as some type of an effective deterrent? It, it might have some small deterrent effect. Um, I, my guess is that most of this, these, you know, I don't know the details of how they've used the 
these increased patrols, if that's at all times or if that's mm-hmm. focused on when there are like events downtown mm-hmm. um, and not at other times. Um, but a lot of policing uh, is more reactive than it is proactive. Um, so the odds that a police officer is driving by or walking by and just happens upon a crime in commission, is pretty low. Most of their job is reacting to reported crimes. Um, and so that's kind of oftentimes what we think about why the, you know, these increased patrols might not have a huge crime reduction effect. Having more people, uh, more officers around um, could potentially sort of deter the deter a, a, a potential crime from happening because you might increase the, the risk of, or the perceived risk at least, of being detected. Um, but at the end of the day, also a, a million dollars in terms of just uh, funding extra patrols isn't actually that huge of amount of money um, to where I would think it would have uh, at least the, the, the amount of a decline that we've seen in that neighborhood, I, I can't imagine would be mostly attributed to just the increased patrols. Has there been any research on that specific question of whether, and I'm assuming there has been and what you would know about it, the specific question of maybe a crime does not get committed because the perpetrators who would have committed it are aware that a police car could drive by at any second or they know there there's police in the area, so maybe it's not a good idea for them to do whatever crime they were thinking of committing. How much of that is a deterrent? Um, so there's there's some research that looks at a bunch of different um, what's called target hardening um, policies. Uh, so that could be, you know, potentially police in the area, but it could also be things like, uh, you know, brighter streetlights or um, uh, CCTV cameras and your know, parking lots, things like that. Um, and so it is very uh, it, often this research is done in a one particular location. Um, and so things that might be effective in one place you can't necessarily assume will always be effective in other places as well. Um, and so there's not, to, at least to my knowledge, and this um, isn't you know specifically what I study. So there there could be things out there that I'm just not aware of. Um, there's not, it's not as if there's a study that's sort of this overarching, like this thing works all the time everywhere and in, in every single place, um, because things are so location specific. Um, and so there, again, some of these, knowing that there's going to be a, you know, heavy police traffic and, you know, right, uh, right outside of, um, you know, Cardinal stadium or something, let's just say, or if, you know, there was a, parade downtown, something like that, um, there might dissuade certain types of crime. Um, but it, that might also be hyper-specific to right where they're at and a block or two over. It might not be sort of the crime preventive measure or, or um, policy that you might think. I know a visible police presence can, like we said, might have some deterrence on crime. I will say personally, a police presence helps me feel safer. And when we talk about perception being reality and people feeling that the city isn't very safe, maybe people who live in the county don't really want to come in downtown. What about if let's say police present is presence isn't deterring tons of crime, does a police presence encourage people because they feel safer to go downtown? You know, more of like if it's a 
uh, carrot and a stick, that would be more of the carrot side of things. In the same way that in Forest Park, you see the park rangers, you see the police officers, and you feel generally very, very safe. Yeah, so I'm I'm not personally familiar with uh, the research looking specifically on that of, you know, whether or not people feel safer when there's a police presence. Um, but I do, you know, my assumption as to why this money is specifically targeted in that neighborhood is for that exact reason, right? Is this, this is an area that St. Louis wants people to come to and wants people to feel like they're going to be safe when they visit downtown to go for, you know, to go to a restaurant, go to a sporting event, go to the arch, whatever it might be. Um, and so I, I would assume that that is probably part of the hope of this as well, is that it encourages people to um, to come to that area and, and hopefully make them feel more safe because they at least uh, perceive that they're, the likelihood of something going bad is lower because you know, they're, when they're there, they see police everywhere. Generally speaking, in the research that you have done and, and that you have seen, what does work? What sort of approach does work? I think we all agree that it's got to be multifaceted. It can't just be more police, more jails, more arrests. It can't just be that. It has to be more. So what is it? What is the kind of thing that would actually help a city like this one? Yeah, so you're right in that it's super multifaceted. Um, so uh, as I said a little bit ago, right, the policing aspect of that and even just a corrections aspect um, are all going to be things that are reactive. So it's stuff that's happening after a crime has already been committed and we're responding to it to try to, uh, you know, maybe prevent later crime. Um, but there's the entire other side of this is why does it happen to start with? So before a crime is actually uh, committed, what is leading towards that? So what are the motivations for that? What are the conditions? Uh, and so a lot of our criminological theory points to these um, social uh, factors um, in people's lives. So this could be like economic conditions. This could be um, things about, you know, their uh, trust in police and legitimate in their, their thought of the like legitimacy of police and government um, and factors that might make it, seem as though, uh, you know, crime is a more attractive option. Um, And so doing things that can address what people's lives are actually like, their experiences, um, and funneling resources in a way to sort of alleviate kind of the, you know, social pressures and things, economic pressures um, that might make uh, committing a crime seem like a a more appealing option. Uh, We talk a lot about the police officers in the city. A lot of good police officers get poached by other police departments generally in the county. I think, uh, you know, Clayton has a great police department, and they were like, yeah, we we poach other officers and offer higher pay. And, of course, that makes sense. If you're a police officer providing for a family, you'd feel almost obligated to go to a different city that could, or a different department that could pay more or perhaps have lower crime rates. What do you know, if anything, about uh when you have police departments that aren't particularly thriving and perhaps don't have the resources to incentivize good police officers to work for that department? Yeah, so uh, I'm not a police scholar at all. Um, but in, from like a theoretical standpoint, though, um, if you're losing, if there's a high level of turnover for the officers, um, which is what's going to happen if you're not able, you know, if the, the pay is, is much better in other areas if the sort of risk is much lower. Um, if there's a high turnover rate, it's going to be difficult for officers to sort of form any kind of um, 
bond with, the, you know, the people who might be living in a particular community that they're policing. So um, within theory, there's uh, thoughts about policing is more effective when there's sort of this mutual trust between police officers and the people living in the areas that they're patrolling. Um, and so if you have a high turnover, it's just a lot harder for that to happen, right? You're not necessarily, uh, you know, in, a, in an area where police officers are staying and they have kind of the same patrols, they might know the people who live there, right? You recognize the the police officer, it's someone that you've had positive interactions with, things like that. Um, and so when you have a high turnover, that's just not something that's going to exist. Uh, and so some of those factors um, that cause a lot of tension even between um, the community and police uh, are harder to sort of overcome if it's a new officer every single time, um, you know, some sort of incident happens or someone has an interaction with police um, and you, you, that sort of uh, community bond isn't able to be formed. Dr. Kelsey Cundiff, Assistant Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at UMSL, thank you for your time this afternoon. We do appreciate it. Thanks so much. That is uh, Dr. Cundiff. And if you would like to hear the interview, if you missed any part of it, go back and get it on the Odyssey app, A-U-D-A-C-Y, or KMOX.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. It's Chris and Amy on KMOX. I said we'll workshop it, Amy. (laughs) Headphones on. I know. Sometimes Earth, I talk. Wind to... and fire is playing in my eardrums, and Ronj is just mouthing words. Yeah. Isn't uh, I? I I'm afraid I'm gonna say something stupid. D- isn't Earth, Wind, and Fire coming here, or didn't they? Well, they did years ago. I bought my parents' tickets. Okay, I thought they were doing it again. Maybe they probably did. And then I got worried they were all dead, and I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this because some person will say they're all dead. Stupid. But hmm. I think they're playing at the family arena. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. They're not e- dead. Either they just did or coming up soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I feel like you're right. Anyway. Um, I thought it would be a great way to end the show with an ode to St. Louis. There is a a song. Hollywood Amphitheater in July. Okay. Anyway, Thank go you. ahead. There's a song that I was made aware of through the Riverfront Times, and it's this St. Louis anthem. It's called How Does St. Louis Do It? We got range. We got range is parenthetical in the song title. So the song itself, I mean, the the melody and the singing, I'm not going to disparage it. It might not be a Grammy winner. So you're saying it's bad. I know what well, you're doing. You're it's saying it's just bad. Just go ahead. It's fine. But the words are kind of funny. So there are a lot of words. But here is uh, here's an example. It says, how does St. Louis do it, the good, the bad, and the strange? 105 in summertime, winter's five below. We hit the soaring highs and we bite the bitter lows. The most free attractions outside D.C. Great for families, traffic's a breeze. We lead the U.S. in STDs. So. You know what? (laughs) No. You know uh, what? No. No. Um, We tend to be friendly, cliquish at first, generally generous, down to earth, Artsy, liberal, exceptionally literate. Sometimes our public schools get unaccredited. Hosted Olympics, hosted riots, mostly hosted economic decline. As half our big companies moved overseas, we started the fastest growing startup scene. So it's kind of, you know, good and bad. Okay. Good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, frozen custard, soul food, slingers, gooey butter cake, toasted ravioli till you drop. Then we'll restart your heart at our top-ranking hospital. That doesn't really rhyme, but <laughs> I don't know. What to do. <laughs> it's not great. Um, here's one: uh, the tallest 
Monument on Earth, an 11,000-seater musical theater, see Broadway under the stars, then visit this ancient civilization. Why is it right next to a strip club? (laughs) Okay. So I guess you're talking about Copia Mounds. Can we go back to the STD thing real quick? It's true. Did you look it up? Chlamydia and syphilis were number one, and gonorrhea. My problem with that is... It seems like every city likes to say that about themselves. You know, we have the highest STD rate Does of any other city. city I have never I heard another city brag about that. They do. No, they I've, don't. I heard it about Cleveland once. Oh, get serious. People at college, colleges, that's like a thing. Oh, you know, we have the highest STD rate in, in all the universities. Like, no, you don't. I, I don't know what that is. I Why, don't what's think... the desire? What's the desire all, behind that? First of all, I don't. You shouldn't be like, oh, St. Louis. Every city does it, you know, like Cleveland. Um, it's, eh. Have you seen the promo video, the mock promo video for Cleveland? Yes, it's I've seen it. pretty funny. Like, yeah. here's one of our two tall buildings. Here's a place where industry used to be. But they have four <laughs> major sporting of uh, sporting teams, sports teams. How did that happen? Happen. <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, we both screwed up English there just now. So um, I don't actually know. They don't have NHL, do they? But I guess they, they, they Columbus. claim Columbus. They don't claim Columbus. The Blue Jackets? Uh-huh. I think they do. Cleveland claims Columbus? <laughs> Try that five times. <laughs> I think they do. Uh, how far is Cleveland from Columbus? I don't know. Somebody look that up. Get back to me later. Hey, <laughs> we, right, we are forget- hoping to have a conversation with Joe Brazil tomorrow, or Brazil. Tomorrow, a St. Louis County Councilman about the um, anti-immigration thing that failed, that vote that failed earlier in the week. And don't forget our no context, our totally out of context poll on Twitter at Chris Amy KMOX. Yeah, you should go get that and follow us and vote on the poll. How many restaurant owners know that Rosalind Carter died? (laughs) It's not. We have context. We'll tell you the context tomorrow. Got to join us 10 o'clock, 10 to 1 tomorrow. Everything you missed on the Odyssey app and KMOX.com. It's Chris and Amy on KMOX. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives. Streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.